because of the grisly subject matter presented in the motion picture, The Gates of Hell. No person under 17 years of age will be admitted to the theater unless they are accompanied by a parent or certified adult guardian. The Gates of Hell will be shown in its uncut version, and some people may find certain scenes shocking. Again, we repeat, no one under 17 years of age will be admitted to The Gates of Hell unless they are accompanied by a parent or certified adult guardian. Welcome to the first episode of Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different film each week. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. I'm John. And if you want to find out more about us and what we're trying to set out to do here, I encourage you to listen to our episode zero. But today, we are talking about a movie that I know is near and dear to all three of us. And I think I think this is true of both of you, but definitely in my case, this is the movie that officially made me a fan of cult movies, psychotronic cinema, and that is Gates of Hell, a.k.a. City of the Living Dead. But since we all grew up knowing it as Gates of Hell, that's what we're going to call it. And this is according to the back cover of the Creature Features 1996 VHS release. A priest's suicide, a young girl buried alive, and a strange rain mixed with ash unleash a terror the town of Dunwich has never known. And, okay, the reason why I love that synopsis is because only two out of the three things they describe actually (laughs) happen in the fucking movie. It just kind of goes to show how hard this movie is to describe, you know? Like, if if I was assigned the shit-kicking job of writing a one-sentence synopsis of The Gates of Hell... I mean, I would probably make shit up, too, like this guy. Yeah, but you also have to consider that most of the people writing these synopses probably weren't watching the movie. Definitely not. (laughs) Have you guys ever seen the Creature Features VHS release of this movie? No. No, no, I knew the Paragon. I owned it. Okay, so I'm at Sunco's video. It wasn't even in the horror section. It was in the nine ninety nine and under section, which like all awesome. the raw, all the fucking good king shits movie. there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but also the worst quality versions of those movies were. Oh sitting yeah, there. with the worst subtitles known to man. Yeah, thankfully they were all in full screen though. Oh yes, of course. Or I should actually say, most of them didn't even have subtitles at that point. The worst dubbing known yes. to man. Yeah. The um, I got zombie from there. I got demons too. I got a bunch. But anyway, I see Gates of Hell in there. I'm like, oh wow, I can buy this for eight dollars rather than rent it every other week. And I bought it and I watched it, and it's literally the worst fucking shit. In the yeah, world. it looks like you still got to rent it every week if yeah. you actually want to watch it. <laughs> it is. To- it looks like it's a dub of a dub of a dub. Yeah, this is really one of those that uh, and like. I complain, I know I've complained about this to both of you, how in the age of, you know, Blu-ray restorations and especially this UHD shit, sometimes these movies shouldn't be cleaned up so much because it makes them look bad. But this is like an opposite example. Absolutely. I mean, just a couple of days ago when we watched Highlander, there's the scene where Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery are like fighting on a mountaintop. It's like shot from a helicopter 
But you can, we had this like beautiful Blu-ray we were watching, but you can tell that it's two stand-ins and like one of them's kind of <laughs> dumpy looking. The other one's got like a beard. It's not the it's actors. It's definitely not Sean Connery <laughs> and Christopher Lambert. That's that's definitely an issue with Blu-ray, 4K TVs, UHD, all this bullshit because it just looks so good. But yeah, with Gates of Hell, I mean, and, and especially with like the big set pieces, the drill scene and the, the gut puke and like, you know, the, the big stuff, it... It's just stunning looking. It looks so great. And that's just a testament to the effects work and the framing and and everything that went into it. I don't want to be the contrarian, but I'm going to have oh, to. Oh, shut up. What? You like to see the, the dumpy, not Sean Connery guy? No, I've never seen Highlander, but. but Get off this podcast. Gates of Hell is one of the. And like, I have I have five copies of this movie from VHS to Blu-ray. To Blu- Two Blu-rays. Actually, I just got the Scorpion releasing one. I've seen it on 35 millimeter a few times. And like, okay, you're absolutely right. From like an artistic standpoint, the cleaned up version is better. But this movie has such like a repugnant kind of oozing atmosphere that it too cleaned up kind of kills it a bit. Like the lo-fi... When you can't really tell what's happening there. It's not like that all the time, though. Like, I remember renting the old Paragon VHS and not having any trouble besides some of the night scenes. Also, to be fair, if you're not used to watching Euro cult movies or Italian horror or Fulci the first time you watch this, and this was the case for me as a fucking 13-year-old, I was like, what am I watching? So it wouldn't have mattered how well lit it was. There's a handful. And like, I'm not one of those analog only psychos. But I feel like this movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like Evil Dead, Phantasm. There's something about like the grainier, uglier cuts of them yeah that have very certain... lo-fi kind of movie and 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 one thing is like i noticed like new people that watch this movie don't get the same kind of reaction because they're so cleaned up and so to speak that you can see the zipper on the monster's back kind of thing but that, the but thing is with Gates is that like it's looks so good i mean like during the drill scene it's just so perfect the drill scene yes the gut puking scene, which is the best scene in the Whoa. movie. Okay. That fake head. That fake head. That fake head is great. The fake head is great. The teeth <laughs> is what gives it away. It's the All teeth. Right. Yeah, but <laughs> I bought those two dollar hillbilly teeth from the five and dime before. But okay, so for those of you who haven't seen as many Fulci movies as perhaps we have. That character is played by this actress named Daniela Doria, who is put through the ringer in so many of his movies. She gets her eyeball and her nipple sliced in New York Ripper. And you can't have this poor woman who's been through it all vomiting up actual intestines because she probably would die. Except, as we learned (laughs) yesterday, they did allegedly the first thing she pukes up when you can still see that it's her are like seal intestines or something. No, they're, they're, they're sheep. They actually had sheep like intestines. the the local, they were there when the local butcher like killed that sheep and they just picked up what was, what I like was to left. imagine it was a seal's intestines. Uh, you know, they, they, no, this, <laughs> they went down to the Arctic no, circle and clubbed this, a couple fuckers. It, it, and, it was not filmed in Canada. <laughs> That's definitely something that, I didn't appreciate when I first started watching his movies, but 
it's so interesting to think about how so many of his films, especially from this key period from like 79 with zombie to maybe like 82 or 83 through to New York Ripper and Manhattan Baby, so many of his movies are set in the United States and they're supposed to be about American life, basically. And like he kind of gets it right sometimes. Sometimes, for but sure. But not all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, but at the same time, I feel like that gives them their like otherworldly feel where it's totally. like, this is America, but yeah. through a foreigner's eyes. Yeah. And I, I do think with something like New York Ripper, which is one of my favorite movies ever, that to me feels a little bit more like one of those classic sleazy New York movies from the 80s, from like the late 70s into the 80s. But this is just like, what universe is yeah, this? Yeah, this is operating on a completely different psycho plane. Yeah, it's, and, and one of the things I think why is because it's not just like an Italian guy making an American movie. It's an Italian guy making a New England movie in the South, which yes. I think you got two levels of fucking weird <laughs> shit going on. Yeah. What's neat is when they went down there, they, they filmed this in Savannah, Georgia. And as they were f- like getting ready to film, they realized the city looked way too pretty. And one of the reasons why you always see those winds and those clouds of dust is to make it look more like unholy and weird. That's awesome. Actually, we were talking about that earlier because I don't want to get too ridiculous or academic or whatever, but watching it for the 8 millionth time, I was thinking about how in things like Greek tragedy, and definitely this is something that happens a lot in Shakespeare, you often have playwrights because they had, you know, limited technical abilities and limited budgets and things like that. They show this kind of dread through nature running amok basically like windstorms and thunder and lightning and strange animal sounds and things like that yeah well it's always someone who's upsetting the balance of nature totally and and in gates it's it's the priest who who kills himself and just like throws everything all fucked up but i didn't notice how many crazy animal sounds there are oh yeah the monkeys going nuts <laughs> all right yeah that's amazing i, I, I love that shit it's so good i always like i know it sounds like a monkey but i'm like i always tell myself it's an owl stop telling yourself it's, it's a going monkey. it's ooh, an ooh, ooh, ah, ah. There, like well it's, it's a monkey no i remember there was a weird bird from like that's native down there that they recorded because it they sounds kept like hearing a toucan it. yeah but it's actually like native to, even though the movie's supposed to be in New England. Yeah. Th- well, the, the sound design in general is so good in this movie. It's gorgeous. I love the like weird sound they play just before like some real demon shit's about to go down. It's- and that's when like shit goes nuts right right love that sound i think that's fabio frizzy because the same things in like yeah, zombie I think so too in zombie in the very beginning when the when the cop finds the uh the hand and you're wah, 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 oh it's wah, so wah, good wah. it's so dread inducing it's just one of the things that it sort of goes back to what you were saying earlier about how there's no realism there's just like the these different layers of artifice and strangeness and i think that's why a lot of people find him maybe not as appealing as argeno because he's not all stylized in that sort of more fashionable colorful way 
But I just love that he doesn't ever want realism. He wants dread. This is the first movie where he could really let loose with that. Because Zombie, which I love, don't get me wrong. But it feels a bit restrained because it has to follow this mechanical plot. He, he still has that low-key dreamlike quality even in Zombie. I never noticed it growing up watching it. But the last time I watched Zombie, I was like, oh, this is so clearly... A Fulci movie when he was in that groove, in right. that like weird groove, like the way he moves the camera kind of slowly, like it's, and I think also because he comes from such a broad school of filmmaking, like from making westerns and all this other shit, like comedies, comedies. He was like all over the map and like kind of fell into horror, and when he's making these movies. It... It almost feels like he's using some of the same techniques that he used in other stuff. Like some of the scenes in Gates of Hell are shot like a Western. These like really like tight close-ups of eyes that move to something else. It's building tension in the same way that like a Western movie does. But because it's in this weird setting, it just, it's so strange. Well, and it come, he's coming right off of contraband. So it makes perfect sense that he goes right from this like, crime thriller this Poliziotesky movie that kind of sticks to the rules but is totally a Fulci movie and I think that just goes back to everything we've been saying that he doesn't do even when he's making a relatively straightforward zombie movie he doesn't ever want to follow any kind of rules he just wants to do his own thing which is also why it enrages me when people talk about some of his movies as being oh this is a giallo, but it's not a very good giallo. It's like, that's not what he's trying to do. Yeah. Also, this is it, never call this a giallo or oh I will my come God. to your house. When did that start happening? Like, did you notice people like viewing different folds or like different Italian? I think they think that yeah. they think giallo means Italian, Italian, Italian horror. horror. Yes. Love that. It, it, oh my God. I, that's I, so cool. I don't, I don't. It, <laughs> it, it, it's just, it gets that nerd rage in me. It, it, me too. And yeah, that man child fucking like, this is my thing and you don't know what it's like, so go get away. Get out of my sandbox. <laughs> Hello. It's me, Sandra. You have to come right away. No, there's no time to explain. You wouldn't believe me anyway. Just come, please. I'm having a nervous breakdown. John, I found something you wrote about Gates of Hell recently, and I kind of wanted to... Oh, when I, when I was writing for Film Comment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh... <laughs> 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 this is from John's Amazon review of, uh, of the Gates of Hell. Okay. All right, you were discussing the like phantasmagorical style of the film, right. and you said... It's rarely spoken with the reverence of Bava or Argento's golden hits, movies that have gradually reached sainthood in the genre. But that's not a detriment at all. Gates of Hell doesn't languish in obscurity, but thrives in the gutter. Its destiny wasn't appraisal by the hip, but rather worship by the weird. And I just think that that's, like, that's kind of what we're talking about. That, totally. That Gates of Hell is such a fucking weird movie, and it's so gross and it's hard to describe that there's no way it could ever get to the level of, like, say, Suspiria or, or like, Bay of Blood. And that's not an insult. That's not a slight. I think people refer to, I could be wrong, but, like, as handshake movies where, like, 
there's a movie or even an album or something where like you talk to somebody and they love it and then you know you've met somebody on your wavelength oh yeah yeah and this is definitely one of those yeah yeah i have had that experience a lot i think especially because at least as of you know 10 20 years ago there weren't a lot of women who liked Fulci movies so when I would write about him for my old blog or in other places I would always get people who were so hyped that someone liked Fulci more than Argeno or at least like treated him with respect and didn't just act like he was some sort of modern day Ed Wood yeah or just like oh he's just the gore guy you know oh god that's and you know People call him the godfather of gore. That's Herschel Gordon Lewis. Exactly. Like, what's the fucking deal? That's not Fulci's moniker. Here's the thing, though. Fulci shoots gore. He's probably number one. I've seen every Friday the 13th movie, and most murder scenes go in one ear and out the other. Knifing and blah, blah, blah. Well, they're all just redoing Bay of Blood, but worse every time. And I think they're fun, so I'm not trying to talk right. shit, but from a shooting effects standpoint. It, it, exactly. Like, I love slasher movies. I love dumb splatter flicks and whatever, but there's a technical craftsmanship that Fulci hits. The splinter of the eye scene, no matter who you are, that scene's going to stick with Absolutely. you forever. And it's not just because you're going to see a lady get something stuck in her eye. The timing, the editing, the actual effects work. It's it, so anxiety-inducing. I mean, even the vomiting scene that we're talking about yeah, here, it's, yeah. it's like it plays out, and I've watched this scene probably more than any scene from any movie, which is mildly embarrassing, but... It, he takes his time with it, much like the eyeball scene. It's not this like quick cutaway shit. No. Exactly. It's the the gunfight at the end of a western. It's not about the the shooting and the actual. It's this like build up to this disgusting thing. And because you know it's Fulci, you know you're gonna see it. And that's why the build up to it makes it all the more like harrowing. And I, I would say the scene that employs that the best in this movie. It actually isn't the drill or gut puking. It's the buried alive scene, and and the reason is like oh, for yeah. for most people that scene gets on their like claustrophobia. You know, yeah. it, it plays into like oh my god, I'm stuck, I can't get out. But for me, that scene is like fucking with me in this really weird way. Okay, all right, hear me out. I think there's a direct psychological link between your fingernails and your teeth. When I was a kid and in school and you would hear that screeching chalkboard oh, yeah. sound, mm -hmm. it felt like my teeth were shattering out of my mouth. The front ones especially. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. You know exactly what I mean? Exactly. So, in that scene when she's buried alive and she wakes up and she starts cr like scratching at the top, he keeps cutting to her teeth. And then her fingers that are bleeding and scratching and then back to her teeth. And he's like absolutely going past my regular creeped out fear G spot and he's blasting my back walls of phobias it's just crushing me that scene I... it's so gross i was thinking about that this time around the reason i think he's so effective at inducing dread is because there's this sense of chaotic random violence in his movies and i think that scene really nails it because pun maybe intended <laughs> because it suggests that violence can happen at any time, anywhere. It breaks the laws of physics often. Yes. And in her case, 
it's something that sort of threatens to break the narrative because it's suggesting to you, oh, this person might be the main character. You just saw them die, but now they're alive again in their coffin. But then you almost see her brain split open by, you know, clueless Christopher George. And I totally agree. It's like it makes your hands sweat just thinking about it. Absolutely. Like anyone could be a victim of violence at any time. And the other scene that I think does that so well is when they're in Sandra's house, there's that windstorm that blows all the glass into her wall and the wall starts bleeding. It's like, what is like the glass wall blood is is so good, but it's like, it doesn't follow any kind of conventional rules of genre. Like it, it doesn't say, Oh, this is a poltergeist movie. So creepy wall bleeding shit's going to happen. It just happens. And there's no explanation. Right. And, and that's what's so great. Like the foundation of this movie is like supernatural unreality. And I think that's what really separates it, especially from American supernatural movies where like, you watch an American supernatural movie and they still need to reason the supernatural. Yes. Like, and there'll always be like a holy man that will explain what's going on and stuff like that. Or a scientist who is studying the phenomenon and they come and they explain the rules to you because Americans are idiots and we need everything written down five times. Yeah. Yeah. They, they keep explaining the rules and this, I think it's like kind of, it's laid out at some point in the movie, but I always, forget so almost every time i watch this movie i get a little lost in it and i and and the order that scenes play out like like i guess i've seen it a million times i know everything that happens in it but i'm always so shocked about when things happen and the order, like, yeah. yeah it's 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 like so strange like the, like the fucking gut puking so early in the movie like that's not yeah you think that'd be a grand finale and yeah if an american distributor aip recut a bunch of bava's movies when they distributed them for u.s audiences but if you had somebody come along like thankfully that didn't happen to fulci but if you had somebody come along and recut this movie I bet that scene would be get the end. Could you imagine what some fucking dickhead and some American company would do to this movie? How they would recut it? They would definitely reshoot things because if this was an American movie, the whole ticking clock to All Saints Day would be the main drive. That would be the thrust. It would be, it would be like yeah. fucking 30 Days of Night where every two minutes there's a thing on screen that says Day 41. I know. And right. this, the only like tell that you get of the passage of time is... Christopher George's wonderful five o'clock shadow, like just growing as the movie goes on. And Catriona McCall's comment that, oh shit, it's already midnight. Like yeah. it's yeah. basically too late. Yeah. So great. If this was an American movie, the medium from the beginning, who's wonderful, by the way, she's amazing, would be in the car with them. She oh, would, yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah. She'd be main character. She'd be them explaining the plot. She would be expository. Oh, woman. yeah. She would be bringing the book of Enoch. Which is only brought up really in the beginning. When you were making those hand gestures, I thought you were going to say she would have big giant boobs. (laughs) No, no. That's a big old book right there. Yeah, Enoch's a big big book. book. (laughs) Yeah. Every every time I do this, yeah, it means big book. But she would, and then like every other scene, she'd be flipping through pages, giving more expository stuff. But instead, we get this like mosaic fucking nightmare thing, and it's so much better yeah. for it. And there's there's so many great characters in this movie. I mean, they're they're all kind of shitty people. They but. are, and that's what I love about all of Fulci's movies is 
all of the main characters, he always gives you sometimes major signifiers, but sometimes these just like little things where people are either terrible human beings or in some way they're degenerates. I love how there's just this like throwaway line with the seance in the beginning where the cops are like, well, you've got a record and you've been arrested for possession. It's like everyone's just shitty. Yeah. Or broken. The only character who's like, I think completely redeemable in this movie is Bob. Bob's Poor great. Bob. Poor Bob. Yeah, I, and like I honestly, th- like you hear about bad things from Bob. I think he's an innocent. I don't. Th- oh, absolutely. I think no, the stuff- whole town. They're the fucked up, you know, right. witch burners. Um, Bob just like wants to fuck his like blow up sex doll yeah, exa- and, and like have creepy eyes. Like he, he's not hurting anybody. He, he he's a weirdo. That's how he expresses sexuality. Because clearly, yeah, yeah. Um, Poor and Bob. Giovanni Lombardo Radici plays him with he's this the greatest sadness. That's perfect. Originally, Bob was supposed to be a hunchback. Like that just goes to show you that that's the misunderstood character, right? For sure, like that, like like that's a little too on the nose. Exactly, for sure. it's, it's good they didn't do it. Well, I'm glad they made him seem so young. I think it, it it's like if he was a guy in his 40s, he would seem way yeah, creepier. Exactly. But because he looks like this sort of like vulnerable teenager who has no yeah. family, he has nowhere to live. It's not even that. Like Giovanni Labardo Radici just has that innocent. Like, a choir boy who's seen some shit. That's what he really looks like. A lot of people in this movie kind of have this look in their eyes like they've seen some shit. Even Catriona McCall. Like, this whole trilogy that she's in, which includes The Beyond and House by the Cemetery. Growing up watching these movies, she was never my favorite character. But even she kind of has these, like, layers that are implied, but... They're not just spoon-fed to you with exposition. I I think this is the very first movie she was in. She was like in ballet or something, and then somebody called her and said, "Do you want to do movies in Rome?" And she's like, "Fuck yeah!" Like when in Rome. Well, and I think she talked about how she thought the script was awful and she didn't want to do it, and then thought the movie was so creepy that she wound up being in three of them. I remember. I think it was Olivia Hussey who said that. Um, she did so many foreign movies was because somebody paid her to travel. So she's like, I got to see Australia, got to see Europe, got to see Canada. And it was on somebody else's dime, which is got to love seeing Canada. I mean, mean, if somebody paid me to go anywhere to Winnipeg, you fucking been to that place. It's a shithole. I'm just kidding. No, no offense to Winnipeg. Sure, it's nice. Yeah, you just, <laughs> just alienated some of our Canadian listeners. Hey, I lived in Canada as a kid. Look, you're the one that got me out here in the armpit of the world chasing your galloping cadavers. Speaking of someone who had lots of great gigs, we haven't talked about Christopher George yet. Mm. Yeah, I can talk about Christopher George for a while. Fucking cool. <laughs> he is He is wonderful. He's an absolute fucking king, and we love Christopher George. So much daddy energy in this movie. Honestly, he brings the perfect amount of daddy energy because he's very sure of himself. Not so sure. Like, yeah, I feel like there's this huge divide in Hollywood movies like this, especially in things like film noir, where there is this male character who's either a detective or a reporter who's investigating some crime. And when they encounter some woman who might have information they need, who becomes a crucial part of the investigation, 
there's usually so much down talking and yeah. second guessing ne- what the woman he never says. does that never in this. never it's yeah, even though she back. came back from the dead and has yeah. had visions of the gates of hell opening he's like cool let's yeah. find they, they both perfectly riff with each other and they're both on the same level i think it's also because katrina mccall has some spunk to her she does she doesn't yeah. and she's not like the thing that I, I guess I didn't pay attention to before, she's not really overtly feminized. Like, she wears this army jacket. She and doesn't have to look hot it. or anything. Yeah. She doesn't have to. She just is. Yeah, sure. But you know what I mean. Her, the reason I think she's perfect for Fulci is not only, like, just because you have this pretty blonde in this fucking re- repugnant nightmare world. <laughs> her, her, the way she screams, her face hits that, like, perfect anguish look that really just like yeah. burns into your head i can immediately picture it when you say that it, it, it especially contemporary horror movies when people act scared they just look like people acting scared or they look constipated yeah but there's a thing where like when you look scared you have to look sad like there's a there's a blend of fear and mournfulness and that's what really makes it feel legitimate and she knocks it out of the park and to go back to what you were saying about the uh, sound design of this movie, in the seance scene, when she's like freaking out after seeing Father Thomas Hanks himself, in the background, you can hear a baby cry. That I didn't even amazing. notice that. <laughs> That scream of hers that opens the movie, oh, like yes. before yeah, you yeah, see yeah, anything, yeah. you hear her scream. It's so perfect. It's, yeah, the, the fact the movie opens with this like guttural scream, and then this priest walking around this like smoky graveyard with his disgusting looking eyes, and then they go to the seance, then back to the priest. It's just, it's a perfect opening that sets the tone of just how weird this movie is and like capital w weird you know it's it's a weird horror movie but there's also buried in the sound design there's also car horns and if you really think about it these are things that are made to make the audience feel agitated psychological tools and it's so like for a movie that was just done on like bare bones budget fly on your pants time to think and add those elements is is really fucking cool that's something that i think mostly only william peter blatty is known for because before he wrote the exorcist and before he directed movies like exorcist 3 he worked for the military and part of what he would do was psychological warfare Wow. And William Peter Blatty was doing psyops. And yep, the techniques Get he the learned, he put into the movies that he made as a director. Wow. Is that why the ninth configuration fucks with my brain yes. every time I watch it? Jesus Christ. All of the flashing and the sounds, they're meant to put you on edge. But it seems like Fulci, like totally to your point, Fulci just had this like innate understanding yeah. of how to do that. There's so many times in this movie where things get this visceral reaction out of me and then like maybe a set will look a little shoddy and it makes me wonder uh, how much of it is intentional and how much of it isn't and then my very next thought is who gives a fuck? Oh, you know, totally. who gives a shit? If it keeps getting this reaction out of you, job well done. If if a movie is good, I can forgive lots of things. And if a movie isn't so good but it's clearly trying, I can still forgive things shoddy sets and stuff i only 
fucking mock when a movie's clearly just some lazy, cheap piece of shit that's just made with no love whatsoever. Well, and I think that's why I really connected with Fulci when I first started watching European horror movies and later on would come to love people like Jean Rollin and Jess Franco because even though they don't always have those like standards that you associate with mainstream cinema everything they do it's like nobody else could do that weird thing right and that's what i love and will allow me to forgive any nonsense that like otherworldly quality that you just can't manufacture and it's it's so pervasive in this film like even like the the smaller scenes where there's like just people sitting at home something weird's kind of happening you know like at, at all times yes and and there's like so many little things peppered in it that aren't the major three big set pieces like that aren't the drill the gut puke or the buried alive scene like there's just that like that one scene uh when the lady just gets fucking like wormy dirt rubbed all over her face yeah. by the priest guy like it's just nasty and it's relentless awesome. it keeps coming at you with just this fucking onslaught if by the lady do you mean the psychiatrist like teenage girlfriend oh is that who it was <laughs> oh, she, she's 20 ish yo but, that psychiatrist oh is a fucking kringo he's such a creep He's played by this actor named Carlo DeMeo. He has so many weird small parts in Italian movies. Like he plays a boy prostitute in a Pasolini movie. The therapist guy? Yeah, when he's younger. But he just has this like Play-Doh face that makes me wish it was another actor. <laughs> but but the more times I watch it and the more I really think about it, you couldn't have like Christopher George and David Warbeck in the same movie. No, like, exactly. It would be like no, no. Clash of the Titans. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's not just that. Every one of these movies has one character that's really like carrying like I'm being the, the actor of the movie. I am the man. Because these movies aren't movies where, like, you have a lead guy or lead character pushing the plot forward. All these characters are people that just exist in this fucked up world and things happen to them. They exist in this fucked up world. They're trying to figure out how or why it's fucked up. And then things happen to them. They never figure it out. And then they're in hell. That's that's a Fulci movie you just described. <laughs> that's a perfect fucking Fulci movie. Well, that's that. But once again, going back, like that's what supernatural movies. You should never figure it because the supernatural should never be understandable. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, yeah. and that's why I was saying that it's like capital W weird heart. That's like this movie to me feels like the greatest H.P. Lovecraft adaptation of all time. Yeah. Completely agreed. It really frustrates me the way that most Lovecraft movies try to follow these kind of standard cinema rules where there has to be a love story and there has to be some redemption and Fulci's just like, fuck all that. It's like the old ones are coming from the center of the earth. And not only that, most of these Lovecraft like wannabes, they only kind of copy... The superficial elements, like a weird squid monster and a a cult and stuff like Fulci really understood the you need that atmosphere of supernatural horror that you could never comprehend or you would go insane. That's my theory as to why, like, when you see the the teleporting zombies, which I'm sure we're going to talk more about. Yes. Yes. uh, (laughs) Or like when you see something that's so shocking 
all you can do is be paralyzed in place and your eyes start bleeding and your guts come out of your mouth because you cannot fathom what you're seeing. There's this trope that I always called the uh, the steamroller effect where someone sees the killer and it's always usually a lady and she just can't move. And yeah. the killer can be coming at her so fucking slow and she's just paralyzed in place with her eyes wide. And Fulci does it and in Zombie with the like poofy-haired scuba yep. diver lady. Even though that scene's iconic and the music's jumping and like the effects are great, it always kind of bothered me that this lady couldn't move. And especially when like a couple scenes earlier, she saw a fucking zombie fight a shark underwater. But now she's so shocked. She was totally fine by that. Yeah. I call it the steamroller effect from uh, Austin, Austin Powers. Powers yeah, 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 yeah. Masterpiece of cinema. Absolutely. Yeah. But it doesn't bother me in this movie because it just plays into this cosmic horror. I don't want to say cosmic horror because it's not cosmic. It's very much so... Supernatural terror. Supernatural, and it feels a lot folkier than, you know, cosmic horror. But when people see something in this movie, like a zombie or, or a priest with bulging eyes, and they can't move, it makes sense. And it plays into that fantastical element of the movie. That sense of horror so profound that your brain can't understand it I think nobody does better than Fulci but it also made me think of and you brought this up earlier when you talked about how this was a weird with a capital W horror film it's almost like Fulci is trying to do his version of American folk horror and I think that's a little bit complicated to explain because we don't really have that many folk horror movies here. That's definitely more of a, a British thing. But just this whole way that he incorporates Salem and he doesn't beat you over the head with it. It's a few throwaway lines like, you know, who yeah. our ancestors were. It's like this land is cursed because we burned some people. I just love so much that he doesn't ex like trouble to explain things. It makes the fear more effective. It's like he doesn't say why the witches were burned or give you some sort of flashback Nothing. sequence. No. I mean, you, you got the beyond for that, but like... Well, and that flashback sequence is great, yeah. but it's it's not like the standard American folk horror type thing you would expect when somebody sets a story in New England. Yeah, there's no scene like in the be very beginning of The Fog... When yes. all the kids are sitting around, I the old man's that, telling though. the story. Yeah, no, I, I do like it, but this movie doesn't have, and it's better for this. This movie doesn't have. Time it works for perfectly that. for the fog because that whole backstory is what's pushing everything. Yeah, the fog does feel like American folk horror. Oh, it totally. I think it's one of the best examples, along with like let's scare Jessica to death or something. Yeah. But this is just because it's. And, it, and I know we talked about this earlier, but it's just this whole like chain reaction of an Italian director making a movie set in New England that's inspired by the work of like the greatest New England author, sorry, Poe. He sort of counts yeah. New England yeah, and Richmond. I thought but Poe was like uh, like Baltimore and shit. Baltimore, Richmond. He's, he's Philadelphia. Like East Coast, uh, Philadelphia. He's as Philadelphia. Well. Baltimore stole him from Philly. That's really? true. He yeah. died in Baltimore. He wrote uh, all his great works in Philly. In a little house right near where I used to live. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. I thought he was Baltimore boy. You no. Know, they no. they they claim him, but you know. Damn. Hope I don't fucking die in Baltimore. <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm from that <laughs> shithole. I'd rather be in Winnipeg than Baltimore. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, amen. Uh, okay, can we talk about the zombies? Yes, yes. because yes. I have so many questions. They fucking teleport. 
Are yeah. they zombies? Uh, no. Not in the traditional sense. They are living dead. They're living dead. Absolutely. They're reanimated I, cadavers, yes. I, I, I only call them zombies because it's it's faster to say than living dead, but they definitely oh, are. Sure. Yeah, if we're getting technical here, splitting hairs, they're not fucking zombies. No way. It's so crazy the, like that he just has no rules for them, though. It's like sometimes uh, no. I think there are two yeah, scenes. Yeah, there's rules. Well, I think there are two scenes where they bite people. Like... They yeah, eat the people no. in the bar. Yeah. yeah. But, oh, what? Yeah, they're and, eating them. Uh, oh, shit, I didn't know that. Oh, I was going to say that the rules for the zombies in this movie are that they teleport and they squish the the brains out of the, the back of your skull. The the head, the skull-crushing modus operandi is fantastic. Incredible. Like, what and a, the sound. It's yeah. just this perfect squishing noise. Oh, my God. I remember the first time I saw it when... The first like brain squish scene happened. I was like, "Whoa, that was sick!" And then it fucking keeps on happening three times. And the the last time they do it in the movie, okay, that's when Christopher George gets iced. Oh yes. yeah, I, so sad. That always shocks me. I always forget that that happens because he's clearly the main character, the fucking like lead dude in the movie. As, so as, cool. yeah. as close as a lead person can be in this movie. Yeah. There's no true. No, the, the the real lead of the movie is just the fucking atmosphere. Uh, the real yeah. lead of the movie is the priest. Yeah, he's yeah. the fucking yeah, guy. Way. And Fabio Frizzi's sick guitar score. That's another thing. If this was an American movie, we would be seeing all the townspeople doing their vices and then getting their quote unquote just desserts by the by the priest. That would be such an American movie trope. Yeah. Like the guy uh, who killed Bob, which he does get it by the zombies oh, in the bar. He's the best. Uh, if if you've seen a lot of like Italian art house movies, I realized he looks so familiar to me. Because I know him from this, because this is the first place I saw him, but he's just in all this shit in small roles, and he has the best name. It's Venantino Venantini. Like, his parents were really, like... <laughs> Are you going to eat? They were like, like an what? Italian dish. <laughs> it does. It, does. it, does. <laughs> it sounds delicious. <laughs> Yeah, I love when the end credits to an Italian horror movie roll and you just get bombarded with vowels. <laughs> and everything makes you hungry. Yeah. <laughs> but what else was he in? Oh, he's just in tons of shit. He's in Poliziotesky movies. I think he's in a couple of post-apocalyptic movies, but like in smaller roles. He's right. in a bunch of art house movies. He's, he's in just Seven everywhere. Deaths in the Cat's Eye. He sure that. is. Yeah. One of the most ridiculous Jalo movies of all time. Do you want me to blow your mind right now? Blow Please. It. But no, I don't want you to blow my mind. I want you to squish my you brain. Squish. You, yeah. <laughs> Do you know who was originally going to play that role? Oh my God, tell me. Robert Kerman. What? Yeah. Okay. Who the fuck is Robert Kerman? Hang on, pause. Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, Rob Bola in 70s New York porno films. Yeah, so... He's the lead guy in Cannibal Holocaust, the guy who goes to him. Okay, okay. So this actually doesn't blow my mind or squish my brains because there's this weird crossover shit. So one of my favorite like throwaway exchanges is when Christopher George rolls up to the cemetery and talks to these two grave diggers. And one of the grave diggers is named, the, the dark-haired one is Michael Gaunt, and he's a porn actor 
who's in some Radley Metzger movies like Barbara Broadcast. Wait, the Vince Vaughn looking one? Yes. Not the not the blonde yes. with the mustache? Not the blonde. The blonde with the mustache is uh, Perry Pierkanen, who's from Cannibal Holocaust. He's the blonde guy who gets his wee-wee act oh, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so oh, wow. it makes total sense that he yeah. was going to be in it because his homies are in it. Right. Michael Gaunt... Um, I love those two guys. They're great. They're they're ter- that, their their whole scene is so good. Well, that's a, another thing. The minor characters in this movie really yeah. put, like it, not just them. They're like the most normal people in the fucking. They're pervy. They but, have the best joke though. But they're like nor- normal like, skis. Exactly. Yes. I can wrap my head around that. New York City grave diggers are a bit weird, but like and they're hang on and they're not just regular skeezy grave diggers. They're the fucking laziest grave diggers in they, cinema yeah, history. I was trying to Holy wrap my shit. brain around this when we watched they're, it again yesterday. They're eating lunch to begin with yeah they eat lunch they stop eating lunch they throw a few fucking shovelfuls of dirt well that's five o'clock like yeah it's five o'clock yeah and the whole union baby yeah they're in the union they say union hours (laughs) and did you notice the grave in the background of that scene no it says marks oh yeah like and they're fucking so clearly well uh, Fauci was a communist you know that well Well, i thought he was making a slight at leftist politics oh no no, he's he's, real into it he was a big communist. i fucking love this guy every everything i hear about him is great his family rebelled against Mussolini you'll love to hear it you'll love to hear it and speaking of his history before he became a director he went to medical school and so I love when he has cameos as doctors and like the medical yes. examiner he looks here just like a little, <laughs> little doctor in, guy. In, in, in perversion story he's like one of the medical examiners yep. and it's like before he has facial hair he looks like the a younger mole man from the Simpsons yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that I didn't mean to cut you off Sam about about the cool grave digger characters because I feel like you're going to bring up The Intrusion which is one of the nastiest porno films ever made. Oh no, I was actually going to mention their amazing joke oh. that yeah, it 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 slips by you. So Perry, the blonde dude is instead of eating lunch, he's looking at a porn magazine. And the other guy is, like, riffing with him about it. I guess he, like, opens a page in the porn magazine, and it must be some sort of, like, spread eagle pussy shot because the guy makes this offhand comment and goes, talk about a boxed lunch. (laughs) (laughs) And it just, like, slips right past you. I've seen this movie about 90 times. I mean, I'm hearing it in my head, but it never really clicked with me. Yeah, I watched this so many times as a teenager, never got that joke. I mean, I probably wouldn't have. The box lunch is the pussy. Yes. That's yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. awesome. The vagina. <laughs> yes. Don't say that word. You're going to end up a dirty old man. A pervert. Peeping town. Talk about box lunches, man. <laughs> <laughs> but Michael Gaunt is also in Roberta Finlay's wonderful A Woman's Torment, which is when I realized he was a porno star because I remember watching that with my girlfriend and being like, is that the gravedigger from Gates of Hell? (laughs) (laughs) And like, and like feeling like insane. Like I thought like, like my aspiness was just like fucking with me. And then like, I looked it up and I'm like, holy shit. Yes, it is. Yeah. And we will have more to say about that very soon. I want to talk about fucking Sandra who is the weirdest character in this movie. She, for those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, I feel like she's 
kind of throwaway, so she doesn't stand out as much as Catriona McCall. She's the one that's getting in the, in the therapist's office in the beginning, who's like yes. talking about like her like wanting to marry her dad and shit. Yes, and he's like, "When? Why did you choose the theme of incest?" Perfect <laughs> Andy Milligan level dialogue in that scene. Perfect. Yeah. It, it truly is. <laughs> Although it probably, if it was an Andy Milligan movie, it would be about how someone hates their mother. Yeah, it would which... be the mom that they, that they throw under the bus. The 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 dead parental figure would come back and they would have sex at some point. <laughs> Andy Milligan. Absolutely. But so she's played by Janet Agren, who's this Swedish actress. She has such a weird career where she's mostly in Italian cult movies, even though she's a Swedish actress. But she just... It's like she almost exists in this movie to be scared, which is definitely a trope yeah. for female uh-huh. characters. I love when she gets scared by the kitten in her lap and oh the kitten scratches her. And it's like, and when they cut to that animal, it's just like a little tiny puffball kitten. But there's some weird black cloud and weird sound effect that just happened. Yeah. And it- but I think in some ways she's kind of the opposite of Mary's character where Mary comes back from the dead and says she has this vision and everyone's like yes totally whereas sandra no one takes her seriously yeah not especially not her therapist especially not but the thing that i want to talk about the most is it seems like her either her profession or maybe her hobby is that she's a painter which i feel like is maybe a little nod to the beyond but the first time we see her in her house, she's painting this fucking picture of a beach with a giant rhino head hovering oh, yeah. over the beach. <laughs> I love that shit. I love that little rhino. I wonder where that rhino painting is today. The The one thing that I wonder is today is that fucking huge tombstone. The quote on yeah. it. Oh, my soul, God. That talks that... about the what the hell is it? Wait, it's wait, the... I can wait. Let's see if I can do it by heart. Yeah, let, let's see this. The soul that pines for eternity shall outspan death. You, dweller of the twilight void come Dumwich? Yes. Sick. Wow. Sick. Damn. Wow. Sick. That's a sign of a wasted childhood That's right there. <laughs> None of us were ignored by our therapist. Yeah, you could call that one a red flag, ladies. I do love that line about the dweller in the void, though. It's so Lovecraft. There's so many Lovecraft. I mean, Dunwich, the Dunwich Horror, yeah. the Forbidden Text. You oh know. Yeah. yeah, the Book of Enoch, which yes. is basically the Book of Abon. Like, why not make it the same fucking book? It's, it seems like they came up with the idea, but they forgot to flesh it out. And then when they went back for the Beyond, they're like, "No, creepy book." we should do more with that yeah which is awesome okay so the beyond is a lot easier to digest for your standard movie watcher like it still has that dreamy atmosphere and it's still like whenever i watch it with someone who like doesn't really watch horror movies that often they're always like what's going on i'm like it's the beyond oh okay i get it you know whereas with in gates of hell i can understand a regular normo being like frustrated by this movie and being like, what is going on? Or totally grossed out. So just disgusted. So my classic story that I don't really tell very often, so it's not a classic story at all. But the first time I saw this was of course, because I rented it and my saintly grandmother would always watch horror movies with me. Her attitude was kind of like, if, if you're going to watch it, I just want to know what you're watching yeah, because okay. I 
I was fortunate enough to grow up in the kind of environment where I was never told, no, you can't watch this. No, you can't read this. It was just sort of like, all right, if you're going to do this thing, I at least want to have an idea what it is. And she genuinely liked horror movies sometimes, but the, I, I will never forget the day we watched Gates of Hell for the first time because I had no idea what it was. I had never seen any Italian horror. I had never seen any Fulci. So I didn't want to say like, I'll wait until nighttime to watch this. I watched it like three in the afternoon. I was eating a bowl of leftover spaghetti. Oh, bad. <laughs> it was the worst possible choice. And my grandmother like went and made herself a sandwich and we're sitting down. We're watching this movie. She got to the scene where Daniela Doria starts vomiting up her intestines and she was like, you know what? I love you, but I got to go in the other yeah, room. You're on your own with this one. <laughs> you, you keep your fucking spaghetti. And yeah, this, you and... I almost threw up. It's the only time a movie has ever made me almost puke. Well, yeah, that scene is kind of like reverse eating spaghetti. It is. It was a really bad choice. But the moral of the story here, I think, is it's not for regular people. No, absolutely not. It's I... like John was saying earlier. It, basically, if you see this movie and you are moved by it and you engage with it you're part of some secret club of yeah, freaks like the rest of us has that sort of power that like like i always liked horror movies growing up but when i started watching fulci films that's kind of when the switch got flicked like that's yep. when things changed this movie changed my life for sure Mine too. This was a major tastemaker for me. This is if I ever made a horror movie, this would be like the movie where I'd get the cast and crew for a screening for. So you'd be like, "This is what we're aiming for." Oh yeah, and I think that also is why we decided that we had to start the podcast with this movie because it's so important to all of us. But I think it also, and you know, as we said in our episode zero we're definitely not just going to be talking about horror movies and we want to do a lot of different genres that sort of fall under the umbrella of cult cinema or psychotronic cinema but i think this just has that indescribable quality that is what makes us all excited to talk about movies and to watch them right and intestine vomiting how do you know I mean, how can you be so sure? I read the name. On a tombstone. Mr. Bell, if those gates are left open, it may be the end of humanity. We've got to try to get them shut again. At midnight on Monday, we go into All Saints Day. The night of the dead begins then. And if the portals of hell don't get shut before, no dead body will ever be able to rest in peace again. And so the dead will rise up and take over the earth. And you must have got to get to Dunwich. You must reclose those gates. Okay. So can you tell us about the clusterfuck title situation? Oh, yes, absolutely. So we're all calling this movie The Gates of Hell. Most humans, I'd imagine, know this title on their City of the Living Dead because when it gets reissued on DVD, Blu-ray, etc., etc., uh... That's the title it's under. But in Italy, when this movie was being made, it was called Fear. Then it was called Fear in the City of the Living Dead to cash in on the success of Zombie, which was doing fucking gangbusters. So when the the person who would end up distributing this in the U.S. got a hold of it, they decided, hey, you know, we're going to call it Twilight of the Dead. And the one sheet 
even kind of has much like Dawn of the Dead, like a zombie head. And they did a whole ad campaign. And then literally less than a week, less than a week before its first run, George Romero's attorney calls them up and be like, yeah, this looks too much like a Romero film. If you don't change it, we're going to sue. And by the way, the distributor actually thinks that they knew ahead of time, but waited until that oh, week, just fucking dildo. That's, that's a real dildo. Yeah, that's a very like, like fucking Hollywood scumbag. Exactly. Like, fuck like, your movie. Like if they did it like a month behind, and like, well, it makes sense that Romero would want to fuck over this guy who made a fucking secret sequel to his movie. Who's, his, like, who's cashing two. in on his territory? I, yeah. I, I could, like, listen, if it was, like, a month beforehand, I could see, like, he doesn't want to be associated with this. And it's it's been so, like, it's just too close to his stuff. But, well, anyway, they were working on a movie that was later t- uh, titled The Devonsville Terror, which I, f- was it, what year is The Boogeyman? It, it was Yuli Lomelot. 79? 81? No, it was 81, I think. Because yeah, oh. it was definitely post-Friday the 13th. Oh, yes, it was. So so it was it was Yuli Lomelot's film after The Boogeyman, I'm guessing. The Devonsville Terror? Yeah, isn't that, I think it's 82. Okay, that well, makes what sense. Is, what does The Devonsville Terror have to do with Gates of Hell? When that was being made, it was called The Gates of Hell. Oh. So they gave The Gates of Hell, City of the Living Dead, the title Gates of Hell, they rechristened... The Yuli Lommel film, the Devon, Devonsville Terror. Oh, so they they swap fucking titles. Right, right. Well, that's kind of convenient. And I mean, I well, first gotta... of all, the Dev- the Gates of Hell is a fantastic title. Oh yeah, and it's deserves be- the better the, movie. The Gates of Hell is better than Twilight of the Dead. It's better than yes. City of the Living well, Dead. It makes more sense because it's a movie about a literal gate of hell opening. Like, why not call it that? So within literally five days of release, they had to change the whole ad campaign, make new one sheets. They had That's to actually shit. go to the prints and cut out that title and add in the gates of hell. And they had to pay like fees because they had to stay overnight at places printing shit. So it cost them like a good like seventy, sixty five thousand extra dollars. Wow. And that doesn't even include the money that they paid for the original ad campaign. Fate Romero is getting his fucking dig in because he fucking took Dawn of the Dead, which was called Zombie, and made Zombie Two. I don't. I don't, th- I don't think it's Romero as much as entertainment producers finding another thing that they could possibly make. Well, yeah. no, for sure. I, I don't mean, see like I don't. I've never met George Romero. I just don't see him as that type. No, of, you're absolutely right. Hey, because there's yeah. millions of other movies that and things that ripped off his zombie stuff that he just like shrugged and be like, that's you know, that's the business. I mean, this is also something that Italian producers dealt with for basically two decades because their kind of cult cinema bread and butter was seeing what they could remake and what they could repackage as a sequel to some Hollywood blockbuster. So it's also their fault, too. Oh, yeah, and I'm sure they knew that from there's Alien 2. I'd take Alien 2 over Aliens. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Calm down. I'll take Deadly Spawn over Aliens. Oh, so good. Yeah. I would too. And alien contamination is as good as aliens. There are crickets chirping somewhere in the background. Well, you don't, you don't, you don't dig alien contamination. I mean, that sound that it uh, makes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I think no matter what happened, we are living in the correct timeline. 
yes. that the Gates of Hell ended up with that title because that is it, and it's the most like one of the most motherfucker titles. Other than Twitch of the Death Nerve, Twitch of the Death, Nerve. Twitch of the Death. What Nerve. other? No, hang on. Let's spitball for a minute. There's really great horror movie titles, but I think Twitch of the Death Nerve and Gates of Hell are like easily in the top fucking five. You see what I mean? That's how fucking good it is. You can't even. You can't even. Yeah, you can't even think of. So I mean, you're thinking of good. You're thinking of good titles. I bet you there's something. There's there's good titles and appropriate titles. Uh, but you're not thinking one that's Texas better. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a yes, pretty great title. That's it right there. Yeah, it's like doing some like iambic pentameter shit. It's perfect. It makes um, your brain feel all fuzzy. I remember seeing the Dead Trilogy in reverse order at a very young age, and those were like the life-changing movies. Wait, so you started with Survival, then you saw no, Diary, and no. then you saw Land? No, I also... So my childhood was beautiful because in my childhood, there was only three Star Wars movies. Oh, me too. And there was only three George Romero Dead films. And, me too. And, 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 it was magical. Yes, it was such a beautiful thing. And then my teens came and there were other Everything ones. was ruined. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, it's not. But in some ways, it's really sad having younger friends because when you say things like the first Star Wars movie and they think you're talking... <laughs> I can't even I can't even say it. Uh, and they think you're talking about fucking Anakin Skywalker. It's like I just kill me. Who are these damn get off my lawn? I so after those I would rent any movie with like dead in the title of the dead living dead. And I remember seeing some stinkers and stuff and then one day I go to Orbit Video, which is for many years the center of my whole entire fucking existence. That was West Coast Video for me. And what was really weird was they had like the the horror movies on the wall, but on the bottom was A, and they would go up to Z. So like eleven year old me finally looks like at the top, and there's a movie called Zombie, in a big clamshell case with a mm. fucking rotted head, and in red letters, "We are going to eat you," and I realized holy fuck that's the movie that was made for me that's exactly what i'm looking for it's even <laughs> like screaming at me that like yo they, all those dead zombie fucking flesh-eating shit that this is the one that you need to watch and i rented it and it fucking wrecked me like fulci will always have a special place in my heart because there are many horror movie directors where i watch their movies and they say day of the dead scared me there's a few John Carpenter flicks that scared me. Zombie traumatized me. I will remember exactly where I was when I was, how I was laying down. When the movie was over, I couldn't even go to the to the VCR to take it out. It just it, <laughs> it rewound it, itself. Exactly. When it was done. I just I was just fucking hit. I was punched in the face. What? And then you go and rent fucking Gates of Hell. And then in my first case of self harm ever. <laughs> <laughs> A week later, I, I see this movie, Gates of Hell. Like, I just noticed it, and I see that name, Lucho Fulci, that was burned in my mind because of that. And I'm like, yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> let's go again. Sold. I didn't watch it. I, I experienced it. That's the way it was. Yes, and that's how his films are. Okay, we've both told our traumatizing spaghetti and blanket stories of how we first saw this movie. Yeah, Charles, how did Tell you us. see this? Oh, God. Well, uh, I don't know. I don't remember that kind of shit. I do. I, uh, I like borrowed it from you, John. When we were kids. I was yeah. like, okay, no, that's how I saw it. I, I, 
I went over to John's house, and John's like, hey, you want to see something? (laughs) 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 There were so many times where I would go over to your house when we were kids, and like... And I, I think you were just trying to fuck with me. I mean, I liked <laughs> horror movies, and I think I, I told that that's why you did it. I said, "Oh yeah, I like horror movies," you know, because like Halloween Six was like my favorite fucking <laughs> oh, movie. God. I loved Halloween Six when I was a kid. And I, I would go over to John's house, and he's like, "All right, I got one for you." And like he would put on some fucking nasty shit. And I'll never forget uh, the time that I like brought my first real girlfriend over. This is not a true story. This, this is, is a slander. fucking true story. This is, this is absolutely what happened. I bring over like my first real girlfriend to meet my cool older movie nerd friend, John. I'm like, Oh yeah, he's cool. We watch weird movies together. And John puts on forced entry. <laughs> this we watched not... a fucking like roughy porno. This is not true. This you are misremembered. This, this is I would have never no, done anything this, like that. This fucking <laughs> happened. I would have never done I mean, we did do that, but not when I first met her. Well, she certainly wasn't strangled. Doesn't seem to have been any kind of physical abuse. What was the cause of her death then? Some kind of cardiac arrest. Only that expression on her face looks like pure fear, like something scared her to death. Scared? Uh, excuse me, Mr. Robbins. Do you know if your daughter had a heart condition? No. No? No, no, she was... Mr. Robbins. Oh, God. God. <laughs> well, what's our procedure? Sit tight. Everything depends on the autopsy. Yeah. I'll sit tight. You'll get your orders after that from the DA. Okay, but let me hear from you, Joe. What's your opinion, Jerry? What's there to say? I'm at a total loss. It was... it was Bob! That pervert, you can bet on it. They should have put him away for life after what he tried to do with poor little Ann Ross. Listen, this movie is like a mixture of, like, the otherworldly eeriness of, like, Mario Bava stuff, particularly Kill Baby Kill. Which oh, yeah. It, yeah, that this movie and that and Kill Baby Kill have some parallels, and I know Fulci fucking loved Bava. They even worked together a few times. Yeah, and I think also we haven't mentioned him yet, but credit has to be given for some of that to Dardeno Sacchetti, who co-wrote the script. If you like Italian horror at all, you will know his name. He worked with Bava. He worked with Argeno. And I think he has that kind of great sense of what's scary. Yeah. That works in a lot of these movies. And I don't even mean in like bigger overarching plot ways. I think he's very good at kind of amping up those little scenes that we've been talking about. Like those set pieces and having them just like get under your skin. Like when you were talking about the the scene where her fingernails are scraping oh, on yeah. the inside of the coffin and he keeps showing her teeth, it made me think of that scene and I don't know why this just like flashed in my brain. It made me think of that scene in Deep Red where the guy's teeth get bashed into the oh, mantelpiece. Yeah. yeah. And so I think much like Fulci, Sacchetti was somebody who just like knew what was scary but not scary in a psychological way like in in a visceral way like what would make you think about on some subconscious level about the fact that human bodies are so vulnerable when they wrote deep red they purposely made scenes with human pain that the audience can relate to like you know what it's like to bash your teeth in you know what it's like to get burned by hot water Things yeah. like that. Like, they didn't just do... So like, gross. That's why, I mean, to me, uh, even more off-topic, the scariest and the most 
shocking scene in the movie Hellraiser is when they're moving the fucking mattress the up the stairs, and the, nail. And the yeah. guy just cuts the back of his hand on that nail because it's just like you instantly feel it and you you recognize it, yeah. whether that exact thing has happened to you or not. You just know that oh yeah, the skin on the back of my hand's real soft and fucking get. But also in that scene, and I think the way the characters react to that violence tells you so much about who they are. Like especially Kirsty's dad and Julia, yes. their very separate reactions to the hand wound. It says so much about who they are without exposition, which reminds me of something that Fulci does again and again. Stuart Gordon has a great quote where he says, Godzilla is not scary because nobody can relate to watching a giant monster crush their city. But cutting yourself shaving is scary because we've all done it. Oh, Stuart Gordon. I wish Rest his movies peace. were scarier. <laughs> they're, no, they're, Reanimator isn't scary, but it's a fun, subversive, a yeah, gross he, he, he doesn't, yeah. I mean, he makes movies that are in the horror section of the video store, but aren't scary. And that's fine. Oh, and there's, you know, a place for all kinds of horror. But what we started talking about that atmosphere. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think Fulci is a king at at just preying on, like, not just fears, but, like, specifically phobias. When he's showing like the maggot rain, like people, oh fuck, my god, and, like the maggots yeah. on their face, yeah. and like you can Which see, the actors hated. Absolutely, they hated. There was fucking maggots on their face. It looked <laughs> awful. But it's, it's for the movie. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, like I mean, I, even that scene that we keep talking about with Catriona McCall in the coffin and the pickaxe hitting her face. She was so upset about having to film that because she kept like flinching and Fulci apparently kind of yelled at her and said, you need to film this scene without closing your eyes and and flinching visibly. And he said to her, if I can do it, then you have to do it, too. And he got in the coffin and filmed the scene himself. (laughs) But that's that's good. That's a good director. A a good leader should never tell somebody to do something that they wouldn't do. Like that's a respectable thing, I feel. Uh, but the scene is perfect. Yeah, he got even though he, he was mean to people sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know a, a little secret about that scene. Let's hear it. That pickaxe isn't going down as fast as you watch in the movie. Oh yeah. They filmed that at 16 frames per second, so it really it's just slowly going in there. Oh. It's so sort of like a car chase. Yeah, you can't like okay. you can't you can't just slam that shit when you I, know somebody's okay, in the coffin. Okay, so first like watching that scene, I was trying to figure out how they did it and like my first thought was like, oh, they're doing it in reverse. But then like when you see the fucking wood splitting, I'm like, okay, they're not, not doing that. Not in reverse. No, no, no. That shot where he finally gets a chunk of the wood out and you just see that close up of her face through the hole in the coffin and she's screaming oh, is, is one yeah. of the most iconic. Absolutely. It is. We also haven't talked about Sergio Salvati who shot the movie and yes. a lot of that shit is him being magical. An ultra talented director of photography. He worked with Sergio Leone. Yes, he did. Didn't was he the co- camera operator in The Good, The Bad, The Ugly? He sure was. Yes, he was. Oh fuck. Yeah, that's yeah. And yeah. this is this is also oh, yeah. This is why I get like, and I'm not trying to yell at either of you about it. This is why I get all like fired up when people talk about how 
directors like Fulci are just making these trash films and nobody knows what they're doing. And it's like you have these people who are making some of who are working on some of the greatest films in cinema. Like they're just doing something different that you might not be able to appreciate. You don't see that in in America. You see that everywhere else. Like I'm sure like later down the line when we start talking about category three movies these like big name actors doing the most reprehensible exploitation (laughs) films and then like next year they're in like the biggest movie in hong kong like wong kar wai bullshit it's amazing and i do think this is why we're trying to cover the kind of ground we are is to sort of show that like you don't have to pigeonhole movies into a genre it's like they're all magical in different Mm -hmm. ways and i hate that about hollywood that like if you're somebody like wes craven or john carpenter and you make horror movies you have to stay in your lane right now wes craven did music of the heart and he did great pornos too fireworks woman yes what yeah uh he used to make pornos on their name abe snake he no way he he was even he even no fucking way he john uh, wes craven even worked on deep throat yeah, so we are definitely going to cover some hardcore movies. Oh, I can't wait. On this podcast, but yeah, we got to do a Fireworks Woman episode. Oh, cool. Um <laughs> that's sick. So, to 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 keep on the topic of the buried alive scene, there are little minor flourishes in that scene that are fucking fantastic. Uh the rose petal falling off. Oh, yes. Yeah. The, you know, the mirror and you see it fogged up. Yeah, with are breathing. Why do they put a mirror in fucking coffins? That fucks me up a bit. So you can check yourself out after you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> that bothers that, that, like, literally puts, like, a chill on my spine. Like, ooh. Just, like, to think, like, why are they there? Why is, like, my dead grandma be able to... I mean, I don't think they put a mirror in hers or anymore. They don't. But I'm saying, like, there's some dead people out there that are staring at their rotting face. So there's some crazy shit where... And we'll have to maybe find a movie that ties into this. Because there are a bunch of 30s and 40s movies that sort of deal with the topic. But buried being buried alive and fears of being buried alive were a real thing in the 19th century especially the premature burial yeah people were terrified of it and i mean you know poe i think really covers that ground but they did especially as we all know rich people are fucking crazy and do some crazy shit and you can look up all of these wild stories of how rich people tried to rig like alarms and escape shoots in their tombs just in case they're accidentally buried alive. It's wild. But but I can see that. I can see being rich and being afraid of being buried alive. I mean, it's alive. a pretty primal fear. But where does putting a mirror so a corpse can watch itself rot come in? And that's another... <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? No, you're not, wrong? you're not wrong. It's... But but there's another thing about this movie. How no matter how bizarre and supernatural it is, it has a very strong and very real sense of human mortality, oh, which yeah. is what yeah. really makes it creepy. Yeah, like even in the the like the ending when. Uh... Christopher George gets his brain squeezed in. As soon as he falls down, these two giant rats just start get to eating work. His brain. Just get to work on it. But no time is wasted. No, and, and like, and that just like also like people are fucking like very often 
terrified of rats and terrified yeah. of bugs and terrified of being yeah. buried alive and getting their hence, hence no the, no that's a strong thing the original title of this movie was pora which is fear and and in Italy, in italian which is a original like i feel like that was a strong thread in the early stages of the movie i think it went and became something else as they went along but it's still there in the yeah. backbone yeah this is a scary fucking movie it's not ju- it's the fear of death Death anxiety and decay and rot are very strong. The grave diggers that we're talking about, they're exhuming a body. And that has nothing to do with anything in the movie except for the fact that, like, oh, hey, look at a dead body. This is what you're going to eventually be. And here are some dudes who don't give a shit and they're just eating their lunch and reading some porn. Exactly. It has, you know, it's just a fucking job to them because that's just a fact of life. Here is a person in a coffin. Uh, uh, Sergio Savati, the the, um, director of photography, says that those scenes are the hardest to shoot because the actors in a coffin cannot help but think of what it would be like when in, when you're dead. And and he says it's very, very yeah. hard to, to film stuff like that. You have scenes in a fucking funeral home. Oh, my God, the which mortician. is called... Yeah. It's called Moriarty, Moriarty and, Sons. and Sons. It's like he really just wanted to throw a little Sherlock Holmes in there, <laughs> but added an extra vowel. Can, <laughs> That's a classic Italian move. Yeah, classic. do not do not entry level Moriarty. <laughs> That's the best. Can, can you imagine Sherlock Holmes in the world of Gates of Hell? His fucking mind would explode. Well, His logical, obsessed mind. The, the mortician in the scene is stealing jewelry off of the fucking corpses in there. Yes, yes, yes. And he looks... And that's why Emily, undead Emily, I think bites his hand because no, he tries to steal from her. No, it's like the dead grandma lady. That oh, does. yeah. And that fucking dead grandma lady gets around. She certainly does. But but here's the other thing. Like, all the corpses of those scenes, they do not look like traditional funeral corpses. They do not have their jaws wired shut and their eyes wired shut, which is standard practice in funeral homes. They have these slack-jawed, like, I'm dead looks to them. And you even see um, Emily getting embalmed. Like, you see all the blood being Oh, yeah, there. you see the trocar. You, yeah, you see all of these true and very realistic things of death that really just add in that atmosphere it's a really fucked up way of grounding it in the physical. Right. Yes. Which I the f- only way that it's grounded in the physical is in is through death. Is being yeah. afraid of having your fucking brain squished. <laughs> but I I I feel like the best horror movies are the ones that ignite your death anxiety because that's what they really are. You know, nowadays movies are like everything works the power of love will conquer all and we'll all live forever and baby jesus will watch over us but this or movie- rationality i think for a yeah. while there were those horror movies where there's some logical explanation or some logical way to problem solve yeah fulci's yeah. like oh nah. th- and there, there's one scene in this where I, I forget which character it is i think it might be uh the therapist guy uh he sees a fucking corpse and then he like closes his eyes for a second yeah, like, and then opens it, and the corpse is gone. But little does he know, they're fucking teleporting corpses. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yes. he doesn't know the rules, and like he thinks, like, oh, thank God, you know, I shut my eyes and I wasn't seeing the and thing. No, anymore. no, that it's not like he doesn't know the rules. He doesn't know that there are no rules. 
Well, that I think is what makes this truly scary and what makes Fulci's movies from this period truly scary is I think the real source of horror is not even necessarily that people are going to die is that there is no real logical order to the universe. You have no control over your life, your mortality. The the whole absurdism. Which, totally, which, which is a big part of Lovecraftian horror. And not only that, it's I think that's a big part of like the scariest horror movies. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they just happen to run out of gas right there. Wrong you know? place, wrong exactly. time. Exactly. And I think that it uh, uh most horror especially American horror is very conservative. Somebody did made a sin and now they are getting punished for it. Well, I mean, we'll have to do an episode on like eyes of fire or something like that, but Calvinism ruined everything. But, ruined but, everything. but it was the, but it was really the seventies, which is in my opinion, the best decade of movies, especially horror movies where it was like, no, it has nothing to do with like you made a sin and you need to die. It was just like, this is, it's just a fact of fucking life. You were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And now yeah, you there's suffer. no, and I think that's what makes it scarier. There's no reason. It's not that you did something wrong or that some sort of force needs to be, you know, exercised it, or killed. It's just, you're going to die. It has that classic Italian Mario Bava Gothic horror but also has that potent, rancid, rotting human death stench of early Toby Hooper. It's it's strange and creepy and in-your-face, nasty and visceral, just sewn together by some fucking grindhouse alchemist. And this is the only movie to really master that atmosphere. I feel like Grindhouse Alchemist is the perfect descriptor for Fulci because that also, I think, is one of the real dividing lines between Fulci and Argeno and even between Bava as well is I think they have this really gorgeous, often kind of Baroque sense of style and Fulci can have that when he wants to in things like Lizard in a Woman's Skin, but he just has this like weird grungy punk vibe that no one else was well, doing. And I think Umberto Lenzi would do it a little bit later, but, but not as good. The reason I would guess that, that Fulci has that and Baba and Argento don't is because Baba and Argento were wealthier than Fulci. Not like, so well, much Baba. Argento yeah. definitely. So I think in the case of Baba, I think it's, Bava came first and usually was the first person to do things that other directors would then build on. And his training came from these big budget historical epics. So he's automatically working within this Chinachita studio system and, you know, grew up in this artistic family full of painters and cinematographers. And he's coming from this very clear tradition. And I think because Fulci comes along a little bit later... And just has this... Working class. Yes. And so many... Actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I noticed this time around how many of his characters are working class in a way that like, they're not often 
especially in our geno films where you have these people who are just like they don't seem to have jobs or like they don't actually yeah, they live do in them. Beautiful yeah. apartments. Yeah, you're They're absolutely right. Chilling. You're you're right. Yeah, and the people in Fulci movies, they have jobs and they live in fucking squalor. You know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fuck. And, and Fulci, like, and if they don't, if they if they're rich people, like if you think about the couple in New York Ripper. They're either super perverted or degenerate in some way. That's one of the things that makes his films. So we've been talking about how they feel so scary because even though they're otherworldly and supernatural and there are no explanations for events in this violent, chaotic universe... They feel grounded because they prey on these fears about the body and its vulnerabilities and mortality and things like that. But I think they also on some level feel scary because they're about regular people in a way that the Jalo movies that are about these like models and jet setters and people who are just chilling they feel more fantastical in a way because they're not about real life. Or at least not for most of us. No, you're absolutely right. And because, and like in fairness, uh, Jallo movies are, are style over substance. And that's not oh, a detriment. Sure. I, I, that's one of the reasons I enjoy them. I mean, you could argue that in a certain way, Fulci's movies are also style over substance, but the style is all about that atmosphere you brought up and the yeah, gore. Yes, yes. and But not only that, but there's elements of small town politics that are in his movies that are not that Let's, fucking bar that guy from the bar who kills bob for being the local weirdo which is oh yeah mirrored in don't torture a duckling with uh florinda balkan getting uh chained to death like schweik in the beyond because she's different from the other small town locals that whole thing of there being a character who is a scapegoat there's some sort of social pariah who's used to exercise Schweik communal evils yeah that is a character that shows up in like 70% of Fulci's non-comedies in New York Ripper there's the pimp that's wrongfully accused oh yeah the man with four fingers on his left hand who is also this drove me crazy for years so Bravchik made this absolutely gorgeous non-sploitation movie called Behind Combat Walls that I has sh- the same actor in it. And Who, when wait, I who's he in Beyond Combat Beyond Combat Walls? He's the lover. You've just shattered my phone. Right? So you just, for years you just I was me. like, where do I know him from? And the bootleg I had kind of cut the credits off, so you couldn't see who right. the actor was. And like you mentioned earlier, my aspie tendencies i was like i know i know this face it's not just that he looks like an italian guy he's the guy from new york ripper and he is i think you mean it's not that he look like an italian guy <laughs> i'm talking into my deaf ear pal now take my advice and beat it before the sergeant comes out okay i'll take your advice do you think because Fulci died penniless and went through all this like trauma in his life that that shows up on screen? Well, it's interesting and I'm sure there are, you know, film critics and academics who would freak out at the suggestion of me saying this. But 
in certain weird ways, I see parallels between Fulci's films and Pasolini's films, even though Pasolini is this, you know, highfalutin art house director, and he's one of my favorite directors, and of course made Solo, which is as disgusting as the gates of hell in its own way. But they both had these similarly kind of outsider lives, grew up during World War II, were staunch communists, and there's this similar sense of sadness in both their movies. Like a lot of Pasolini's movies are about not only regular blue collar people, but people who are sort of driven to the margins of society and are struggling to survive. And so I think there's a lot of that going on in some of the more transgressive Italian directors working in the period. And Fulci is never talked about alongside people like Pasolini, but I think he should be because they're often dealing with similar themes. One of the reasons why um, I don't think Fulci is talked about enough outside of his... um, Rabid genre fandom. Exactly. Here's the truth about Fulci. Fulci is the true successor to Mario Bava in, in my eyes. The only reason Dario Argento gets that credit is because he picked up the Jello baton. Blood and Black Lace, then the bird with the crystal plumage, which then set off so many animal... The chain reaction yeah. of hundreds Black of... Black Belly, the tarantula... The turtle with the weeping eyes. Yeah. The, <laughs> but the here's, kangaroo here's with the, the broken tail. Here's the thing. Fulci like Mario Bava, was a journeyman director who would get hired to do certain jobs but would inject themselves into that job and make that movie wholly their own where only they could have made it. I mean, Zombie was a job for hire. Fulci was not even the first director to get that gig. When you watch Zombie, that is a Lucho Fulci movie. It is not a George Romero imitation. No. It is much like... Uh, I cannot think of one right now. Sam, please help me. But what is a Mario Bava film where he was hired to do it before? Oh, a lot of them. I mean, things like Eve Vampiri that he worked on with Freda and some of those early movies like Hercules and the Haunted World, which is one of the best Peplum movies, but is clearly a Bava Bava film. film. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a big supporter of the auteur theory. I do see it like when I watch if you ever see a Hitchcock film that you've never heard of and we caught it in the middle of the night halfway through a big oh wow this is a Hitchcock film but that being said there's a team of collaborators that also oh sure yeah this shit makes me so angry yeah, which we can yeah. talk about more on yeah. another episode yes because Fulci's golden hits it wasn't just him there it was, was a, a team yes yeah, yeah Dardano Sacchetti was a big part of that Vincenzo Tomasi his editor you can see the certain decline that happened right after New York Ripper. But there's even still interesting stuff after that, like The Devil's Honey. Enigma is fun. And Enigma, Enigma is fun, yeah. But the thing is, though, is that Enigma looks a little shoddy. It looks a little like... Because he didn't have Stavati, I don't think, for... I think. Well, you also have to consider that in the late 80s, Italian horror took a real decline. Italian cinema in general. The funding wasn't there everyone's films start to look bad. I mean, Lamberto Bava is working in made-for-TV movies. Really, the only person who gets any acclaim at that particular time is Michele Soavi. Yeah. But it's is like, he the Cemetery Man, dude? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah he's fucking sick. He's do you, cool. Do you know who else he is? 
he plays the boyfriend who vomits oh. up his intent or no. who's with yeah, Daniela yeah, yeah. Doria I when she that. vomits he up her intent. the back yeah, of his head squished. I remember when I first found out that that was that guy, it was when we were watching, I think, not a blade in the dark. We were watching something. Oh, yeah. He's in Blade in the Dark. Oh, yeah. He's in a Blade in the Dark. And he's I was like, oh. Demons? Yeah. And I was like, he's, oh, hey, it's the fucking head squish he's guy. He's an absurd. Yeah. He's riding a motorcycle in absurd. The only reason he's in absurd is because he was the only one in that circle who could drive a motorcycle. He's great. I love Soavi. Yeah, but when I connected those dots that he's the guy that made Cemetery Man, I was like, holy shit. Like, fucking yeah. head squish man. Well, he was just being this he protege was, to all these guys. Yeah. He was assistant director on Demons and yep. lots of other things. You, but one day we will have to do an episode on Stage Fright, which, which is fantastic. I think is better than wow. Cemetery Man. And it has John Morgan, a.k.a. Giovanni Lombardo Radice, who plays Bob in this. It's all an interconnected it's, it's universe. Hey, Bob. Hi, Anne. What are you doing in the backseat of my dad's car? I didn't know where to sleep. You won't tell on me, will you? No, of course not. Only you get some awful weird ideas. Come on, smoke a little joint with me. Only then you better split, okay? <laughs> it's him! Go on, get out of here! What are you doing? I'm not the one! You get in the house! Get <laughs> uh, I, I, I can explain everything, Mr. Ross! Shut up, you bastard! <laughs> What are you trying to do with my daughter? Huh? Please let me explain, Mr. Ross. I was only looking for a place to sleep. I swear. Perfect. No. Murdering. Do you guys think the priest killed himself? An act of blasphemy. And that opened the gates of hell? Or do you feel that it was a deliberate action? And oh. he knew exactly what he was doing. Deliberate. Yeah. It's I always thought his, it was deliberate. It's on his face. This is not a guy suffering from anguish. He knows exactly what yeah. he's doing. And and even afterwards, he's the vessel of of all the horror and chaos going on. He's doing it for the Salem witch burners. He's he's doing it to punish them. He knows all of their sins. They go to him and they tell him what they've done. Ooh. And, Ooh, and, and he's yeah, like, you know look what? At you. Look at that. And, and yeah. that's why he hangs himself, and he knows there's only fucking three days left before the before, like before they can shut the gates of hell, and there's no way that anyone has any time to do it. What about you? You got head cannon shit on you. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I totally agree that it was deliberate, and I think for two reasons. One, because Italy is a extremely Catholic country, mm-hmm. and so you don't have a priest character doing some random shit, especially in a Fulci movie. I mean... This is I'm not gonna. One, though. Yeah, I'm not gonna give anything away, but you need to see "Don't Torture a Duckling" if you haven't. But there is some. Priest, I just spoiled it. Sorry. Yeah. Well, no, there. We can just say there's some shit going on with priests okay, yes. in his movies. So, if it were me, and I was, a, <laughs> I can't even imagine being a priest. <laughs> I feel like if you're gonna kill yourself, you probably would want some privacy. And yes. true. Uh, you know, I worked in a morgue and a lot of our quote-unquote customers were suicides and people do it either in very public places like jumping in front of a train or in private places and they're not usually found for a while so even as a kid the fact that the priest like intentionally goes to this cemetery where there was all this witch burning shit going on it's a deliberate act 
He what also he, looks menacing as fuck. Exactly. He's walking around. He knows exactly what he's doing. But another thing as a kid, and once again, being raised Catholic, the the act of a priest Suicide. hanging himself is such a blasphemous thing that even from the get-go, I knew I was like, holy shit, I'm in for some shit right now. Yeah, I remember when I watched this with my grandmother, who was liberal, but at the same time, very Catholic. The fact that the movie started off with a priest killing himself, she totally crossed herself and was like, all right, what are we watching here? <laughs> but, but here's another thing. The town is super superstitious. And you can... I mean, it's New England. Right. And you could go on about their, like, uneducated yokels, blah, blah, blah. But no, they have to feel some presence of weird supernatural fucking heart and not only that the priest's grave is not a normal coffin it is in the sub basement of this large cemetery in this massive ossuary where corpses decayed bodies are laid to rest not only like all over the walls but even on the fucking ceiling rotting down (laughs) so this is definitely a weird cultural thing because that's way more standard for crowded city cemeteries in Europe especially very old ones where people would be buried in their family tomb but is not something that you find in New England exactly (laughs) and and I know or Savannah New England absolutely right but but it's awesome as hell exactly in my head canon no that's where they put this weird family of fucking bizarre cultists fucking meds and they know exactly what they're doing it's absolutely deliberate and it's to set upon the yeah, apocalypse i all right you're, you're you're giving me a little juice here um, okay let's groove. so uh the guy who who kills bob on the drill Mm-hmm. Uh, he saw the wall split in the bar. Yeah, he which knows, is crazy. He knows that there's weird, fucking devilry afoot. He's well aware that like the shit going down is bigger than whatever. But he still fucking kills Bob. He still rams his head through the thing, and it's not because he he actually blames Bob for everything, even though that's what he says. He's killing Bob because he wants to. Well, it, and because Bob is the pharmakos, which in Greek tragedy, it's the ritual sacrifice. That yeah. It's a person who has to die so you can sort of purge the guilt of the community. But also at Poor the Bob. same time, it's so he can reaffirm himself that something logical and natural is happening. It's not this supernatural terror gripping. It's just a pedophile. Exactly. <laughs> it's not the supernatural horror gripping, tightening its fucking fist on this small town. And it's crushing this, their skulls. It's this creepy fucking pedophile. And if he kills them, it's all done. But of course, when he goes back to the bar, that's not the case. And Bob... <laughs> Poor Bob. R.I.P. Bob. Well, that sounds like a good spot to leave things. Yeah, what yeah. the hell? I mean, we could talk about this movie for 12 hours. I definitely so could. Had no to... doubt. I think we should shout out our good friends at Cinepunks, Liam and Josh. Yes, Please thank you. Follow their Patreon. We could not have done this without them. And also our dear friend andrew calvo who gave us the soundboard thank you andrew we love you andrew thank you for letting us watch cat three movies at your house and sam for the for the kids at home who want to follow you 
I also have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash Sam Deegan. What are you doing on there? Mostly putting out video essays, but in the future also probably some written essays, lists, maybe some podcast episodes, things like that. Sick. Sick. What are you doing, John? Me? I'm. This is my thing now. <laughs> this is it. This is it. <laughs> What about you? What are you doing? Yeah, what about you? Same thing? I'm I I'm I work at a corn. I work in corn. I got a corn truck. I sell corn. All right. Bye. God bless. We talked for a really long time. No, we did yes, not. We did. That is not. No, it is not. We, We're cutting a lot out. That's bullshit. We, We're cutting out your shit. That's bullshit. You talking's gotta go. That is bullshit. <laughs> we, I'm cutting all, all the stuff you said when you were way wait. back here whispering. That's bullshit. Do I just hit stop?